a lot of other ideas. And so what I saw in the media this week and what I saw in people responding to the media this week was if you took a position about homosexuality, then that meant you're a hater of certain people. You, you just hate people. And so when you get around that enough, you come into a church this morning, and if I take a position, you know, you may be visiting, you may be new to the church, you don't even know me that well. So I take a position that I think reflects what my values are and what the Bible's values are, what I believe them to be, and then that gets extracted into, well, that person must hate these other people who don't have that position. Okay, you know, without even opening the Bible, please don't do that to people. That's just not even good reasoning. It's not good relationship skills. It's just not good for humanity. You want to know what people believe, find out what they believe. I mean, I thought years ago we, we learned something about bigotry and about generalizations based on race. You know, if you saw a certain person of a different race than you, you immediately assumed this is true and that's true, that's true, that's true. You never even met them, never even had a conversation with them, and yet you allowed yourself to go there. Okay, well, similar things are happening in this discussion, and we just can't allow ourselves to go there. I mean, I'm listening to Pam describe her experience of walking into a church setting. It doesn't sound like she got clubbed and beat to death because she had some racy stuff in her background. She was overwhelmed with being able to walk into a church, a church, by the way, that actually believes some things and believes some, some things convincingly and strongly, yet she felt cared for and loved in that setting even though she, her life may have been at odds with those things. So, you know, let's leave room for that to be true. Uh, this controversy blew up over some statements that were made by uh, Dan Cathy. And if you go back and read the article where this started, it was in the Baptist Press. It was an interview that was being done, turned into an article about Chick-fil-A, about the business itself, how it was run, uh, the uniqueness of it in the, in the world of, of franchises and, and different values that they held that covered a variety of ways in which they do business and how they treat their employees. And towards the end, he had shared some thoughts about this particular foundation that they give money to. It supports foster care and some missions activity. It, it also uh, it, it created a, a, a camp, a retreat facility that eventually began to be used to help support marriages. So there was marriage conferencing and things that were going on at that facility. He references and says, it, it began as a college scholarship and expanded to a foster care program, an international ministry, and a conference and retreat center modeled after the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove. That morphed into a marriage program in conjunction with National Marriage Ministries, Kathy added. Some have opposed the company's support of the traditional family, the article writer says. Well, guilty as charged, said Kathy, when asked about the company's position. We're very much supportive of the family, the biblical definition of the family unit. We're a family-owned business, a family-led business, and we're married to our first wives. We give thanks to God for that. We operate as a family business. Our restaurants are typically led by families. Some, some are single. We want to do anything we possibly can to strengthen families. We're very much committed to that, Kathy emphasized. We intend to stay the course, he said. We know that it might not be popular with everyone, but thank the Lord, 
We live in a country where we can share our values and operate on biblical principles. And that's the article that started this. There was an interview a couple of weeks later that got a little bit more um, pointed in the Ken Coleman show. Dan Cathy said, I, I think we are inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fist at him and say, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. And I pray God's mercy on our generation that is such a, a prideful, arrogant attitude to think that we have the audacity to try and redefine what marriage is about. Now, quite honestly, when I read those statements, um, I think a whole lot more people should have been offended. You stand up in a culture and you say, we're all married to our first wives. Where was the huge number of people who should have been saying, hey, dude, I've been divorced and you just backhanded me with that statement. Now, I just point that out because I'm curious as to what's informing the conversation in our country. Because no one said anything about that. All the people who are living in relationships outside of marriage, they're either never been married, but they live with someone of the opposite sex, or they've been married and they've been divorced and they live with someone of the opposite sex. And that's their practice, their definition for the family. Well, those people should have been picketing his restaurants too, because he, quite honestly, the divorce thing offended a whole lot more people than the homosexual comment did because there's a lot more divorced people than there are people who think that homosexuality defines who they are. But yet that didn't happen, right? That's not where this conversation went. And I think we'd be well informed to think through, this is, there's something operating in our culture right now that's influencing where these conversations go. But I wanna talk to us this morning about how does the gospel have a conversation with this world that we live in where this value, this particular issue that I want to talk about this morning is in the conversation that the church is bringing the gospel to, right? So my, my first question is, uh, what conversation are you seeking to have? Right here, this thing hits the news headlines. It becomes discussion uh, for your family. It becomes discussion with your neighbors. It becomes discussion with your co-workers, what conversation are you seeking to have? And I'm, I primarily, I'm aiming my, my conversation here this morning at, at any here who call themselves Christians. Um, are you trying to enter into an, an argument about democratic, pluralistic societies? Is, is that what your fight is over? That's your issue. You want to you make the point that guys like Dan Cathy live in a plural society. They've got the right to have their opinion and to make it known. And you, you have the right to agree or disagree with that person. People have civil liberties in this country within boundaries that don't bring harm to others to be able to say what they want to say. First Amendment. Let's have a First Amendment argument. All right. That's fine. That's not a bad thing to do. We live in a country that's got certain values. I think for the most part, if you study the rest of the world, you'll be very thankful for the values that the country that we live in has. I'm thankful for them. Uh, but the First Amendment is not in the Bible. And so you want to treat your arguments very carefully. You don't want to come to blows with people over stuff like that. You're welcome to have an opinion. 
The same way that you, you know, are convinced the New Orleans Saints are better than somebody else. Okay, great. Have an opinion. Hold it strongly. You should hold that strongly, by the way, if you're wondering. <laughs> uh, but, but don't let that get in the way of the gospel. Don't let your passion for American values get in the way of the gospel because that's a different discussion, right? That's an argument. Really, now you're moving towards an argument of what's right and wrong, right? We look at human behavior and we enter into a discussion as to is that right or is that wrong? Okay, now the question for everybody is, well, how do you determine that? Because most of us that, you know, got any age going on us, you don't have to be very old, can look back right now that in this discussion, in the context of our culture, right now the fight is to call something right that most all of us grew up being taught by the culture. I'm not even talking about God. I'm just talking about the culture. The culture taught us to believe that's wrong. Now the culture is trying to amend that position and say it's right, which raises the whole debate of, well, in the end, at the end of the day, how do we determine what's right and what's wrong? What's the basis for that? Is it just when something's been around long enough, there's a certain tripwire that once it's 50 years old, once it's 100 years old, it suddenly becomes right? It's an idea that ripens, and now it's right to call it right? Is it just our personal traditions? Is it, is it something about my chemical makeup as an individual that adjusts what's right? And this is, this is the debate within our, our culture, trying to figure out how to figure out what should be called right and what should be called wrong. Well, in the Christian conversation, let me move to this next thought here. The Christian conversation with the world always involves certain tensions. And I don't mean tensions like, yeah, yeah, the world, the world thinks this and the Christian thinks that. I'm not talking about that tension right now. I'm, I'm talking about a proclamation of the glory of God tension. I'm talking about the challenge for the individual Christian to accurately represent God in your conversation. Right? So here's, here's my question. Do you feel the tension for people to be convinced of God's love or of God's righteousness? You personally. Do you feel the tension? When you get into this conversation, this subject comes up, talking about somebody said this, that guy did that, then there's a bunch of people eating chicken, I mean, whatever, however it comes up, there's this heated controversy going on. Right, right now, I could divide the church right now over who ate chicken Wednesday and who didn't. Right, some, some people, right, you, you, you're like a broker of something. So if you're a righteousness broker, you ate chicken, and you can't understand why anybody else didn't eat chicken. I was standing out there sweating buckets for an hour. To buy my $7 meal at Chick-fil-A, brother. Well, I didn't see you there. <laughs> I actually did. Anybody notice that one of the guys in the church was on the front page of the newspaper? Okay. Yeah. Right. Be careful, guys. I'm, I'm going to insult you in a second. Don't clap. Don't take the risk. I'm just warning you right now. You don't know where this is going, all right? 
All right, so you got the righteousness brokers who when they speak for God, it's about holiness. It's about righteousness. God is righteous. That's sinful. Let's be clear on that. That's got to get out. That's got to be part of my first 30 words out of my mouth because I'm a righteousness broker. And then there's some people here who are love brokers, right? You know who you are. You're wired a certain way. You love the love of God. You love that God loves. And you want other people to be in touch with that. And you've got a passion for that. And you probably, possibly, were a little put off by the righteous brokers in front of Chick-fil-A with their signs and their stances and their rigid feeling relating to this topic. Because for you, you're thinking, I want people reading that sign. And on the other end of this issue, I want them to be in touch with the fact that God loves them. And I feel like the righteous brokers are in the way of that. All right, listen, here's, here's the challenge in this. You and I don't get to choose what aspect of God we're going to represent. And quite honestly, a lot of this doesn't flow out of deep theological revelation. It flows out of our personal temperaments. Right, so some of us, you know, kind of got Clint Eastwood personalities, you know, and so we present the gospel with this, you feel lucky, punk. <laughs> Go ahead, get saved, make my day. You know, we're just, we're just tough and rugged and, and people need to respond to that and And then there's, you know, people who aren't that way. Their personality is different. And and this is what we're doing. We're we're making God in our own image. And we don't have permission to do that. We've got a very challenging tension on our hands. When it comes to this particular subject, there's a reality here. There's a reality here. That God loves the homosexual. And the tension here is to figure out how do you present a God who loves the homosexual and who also says that homosexuality is sin? How do you serve both? Some people want to abandon one for the other just because of the way we are. So, you know, I don't I don't want to I don't want to talk about homosexuality being sin because I feel like that's not loving for that person to hear that. Okay, listen, I'm just I'm just trying to think out loud with you a little bit here. Do you understand without without boundaries and without the commands of God, you don't know what love is. There's this misinformed idea that love just kind of lets people go where they want to go however they want to go. It just, you know, you just got to let people, you just, that's how you love people. 
which would mean God is really, really out of touch when he issues commands to his creation. And he says, you know, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you understand, that's a summation of the law. That's God just putting the law into two quick statements. And so we kind of, some of, you know, if you're a love broker, you love the idea that, hey, just love God and love people, man. That's what Jesus was about. That's what the Bible's about. That's what God's about. Love God and love people. All right, that idea is, a, is a, an expression of the Ten Commandments where God turns and says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have nothing else in your heart as important to you as me. Now, what happens if you do have something else in your heart that's more important than God? Well, then you're at odds with God right now. Well, I thought God was love. Well, yeah, he is love. And he is also the same God who's telling you, the day I become number two in your life, you and I are going to have a problem. And yet he still loves. Love your neighbor. Just love people. Why can't, why can't Christians just love people? Well, they do love people. They love people with a definition that God calls good. God calls it good that you don't steal. God calls it good that you don't put your interest above the interest of others in such a way that you would steal from them, murder them, that you'd set aside your affection and your covenant for your wife and you'd commit adultery with another person and you'd both defraud this person and also stain that person's life as well. See, you're going to stand in a moment where that cute little idea that why don't Christians just love each other? Okay, all right, tell me how to love the person who wants to commit adultery on their wife. How do I love that person? Do I give them advice as to the best way to commit adultery? Do, do I ignore that they want to commit adultery? Because you see, to love that individual is to let that individual do whatever it is that that individual wants to do. See, the reason why this gets a little complicated is because there is a revelation in the Bible, and it has to do with the nature of God. It doesn't have to do with people with picket signs and a bad attitude. It has to do with the nature of God, that God by his nature is opposed to sin, is a consuming fire when it comes to sin. And, and listen, every sin, it's like every sin that exists that comes into existence or has been in existence, it's, it's like it's traveling on a conveyor belt to a destination. Every sin, you understand, every sin is on a conveyor belt headed to a destination. That destination is a moment when God's judgment will be unleashed on it and God will consume and destroy that sin. Every sin is on that conveyor belt. Now, I say every sin, so please don't take special offense at homosexuality because greed and sex outside of marriage in every form and lust in the heart and lying is all on the conveyor belt headed for a destination where God's judgment is going to consume that sin. So if I love somebody and they're riding a conveyor belt towards something, how loving is it for me just to leave them on there? 
and not address their situation because that might make them right now uncomfortable. But I know something that they don't. I know a little bit of discomfort right now might avoid a huge, incomparable amount of discomfort later on. I know that. And I'm called to love that person. What's my love going to look like now? See, for the Christian, loving actions get informed by what's good. I'm going to do what's good for someone. And what's good for someone gets informed by God and by eternity. It doesn't just get informed by a trend for a moment. So, so there's a realm here in which, you know, if I'm a love broker, I need to love for eternity and how I interact with issues in people's lives. If I'm a righteousness broker, there, there might need to be some help in the sense of pulling this category because I think the, the world, the media, whatever, is turning this particular sin into an island disconnected from all other sins and therefore treating it somehow differently. The way in which some of us speak about this sin, it kind of works if you don't personally know anybody who struggles in this category, right? How about if I pick some sins that you live with? Sins that are in your own house. Sins that have the names of relatives that you love and you care about them. They got sins going on in their life and they're riding the same conveyor belt. I I mean, I saw some of the most horrible comments in this arena from Christians The internet's got way too much information on it. You know, normally I have nothing but critical things to say, but I made the mistake of spending time looking at these thoughts. News item would post. People would line up underneath the news item to make their statements about what they thought about that thing. And and some of the Christians, the attitudes just were horrible. Horrible. Some pastors, the pastor actually stood in his pulpit and said what you ought to do, and he was, you know, it doesn't help that he sounded like he had like a third grade education and he was, you know, I'm not against country accents, don't get me wrong, but they don't work in this moment. You know, it sounds like he shouldn't have had any teeth. I mean, it just was not a pretty presentation. And he's standing up and saying, I know how to get rid of all them homos and lesbians. And, and he put up a fence, put all the homos over here and all the lesbians over here and charge that fence with electricity. I mean, it's just the stupidest thing. Now, I don't know the man's wife, but he was a little chunky. I wondered if he wanted to put any gluttons behind the fences. (laughs) You know, it's interesting how we have let the world tell us, put this in on an island and treat it like, like it's just this Unusual. Listen, there is some difference to, to homosexuality, but not like that. Not like that. And so listen, guys, you know, what kind of attitude is getting in us where we just say anything? But, you know, if you got a person that you know and you love and you care about who that's an issue for their life, 
just like, you know, your son or your daughter who's a drug addict. Right, somebody stood up here. How many offended moms and dads would I have here when I said, let me tell you how to get rid of all the, all the, the drunks in your life. Stick them behind some fence somewhere and turn the electricity on. Wow. Well, you're really interested in me caring for your wayward son or daughter, aren't you? Because you've cried tears and you've reached out and you've cared and you've been a part of their life and you've struggled with them. And they got a name and they're a real person. And the church has treated this issue in such a way that it's hard to create bridges of ministry because we treat this sin so differently sometimes. Let me just say this because I know that the second I say, okay, you have this tension here, you have God loves a homosexual and homosexuality is sin. And the second that, that goes there, you, know, that, that you can have thoughts from the other side. I don't like that you'd even call it that. I don't like the idea that there's a God who's so put off by that, that, that he would have anything on this conveyor belt going on. Well, listen, all I can tell you, it, it is what it is. I don't get to change it and you don't get to change it. Let me tell you something that's absolutely amazing. And we just celebrated it in communion and Jeff just spoke about it a moment ago. Because the God who responds to sin with a destructive fury, and I'm pretty sure when we get to heaven and stand before God, that's going to be crystal clear as to why that's the right thing and the best thing to do. Right now, you and I just don't get it all. So the God who responds to sin with destructive fury is the same God that we celebrated just a moment ago who said, he who did not spare his own son. Do you understand that that's what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross? He was swallowing an eternity, a concentrated dose, an eternal wrath from God was being swallowed by his own son. God didn't spare his own son. There's something about the nature of God that is going to respond to sin and destroy it and consume it. Now, the thing that really is difficult here is for people to kind of really take odds. And, you know, I don't, I hate that idea. I don't like that that, listen, whether you like something or not doesn't change whether it is true or not. So if this is true, there is a way out. It's the God who didn't spare his own son so that he could spare you. What an act of love. God really does love you. In an incredible way. Let me see if I can move through a bunch of thoughts here. What to do when the Christian's conversation conflicts with the world? What do we do? We have a view. The gospel has a view. The Bible presents a view. And it conflicts with the world. Right? I read some of this verse last week. Well, first thing is don't be surprised. Can I read my Bible? Should I be surprised that the world thinks differently than the way in which biblical values think? Should I be surprised by that? Matthew 10, behold, I, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Right? I mean, does, does, is there anything in here that kind of leads you to believe that we're going to have this real peaceful coexistence? Jesus goes on and says, if they hated the master, they're going to hate you. And the only way they will stop hating you is when you stop representing the master. If you're really, really at peace with the world, then you can kind of question, am I reflecting God? Because the world is going to be offended by Christ, who he is and what he stands for. And the Bible clearly says that. So when Jesus saves someone and then sends them on a mission, like this verse in Acts 26 talks about the apostle Paul being sent on the mission. And this, this, is, the, this is what he says about the people you're going to, Paul. He says, I will appear to you delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles. So you're going to need to get rescued here. I'm sending you a people who are going to want to eat you for lunch. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul, I'm saving you and I'm sending you. I'm sending you back into the condition out of which I saved you. You were once one of them and you were just like them and you were in this condition too. So I did something in your life, and now I'm sending you into this world. And it's a world of people who are cut off from God. They are dead in their sins. They are blinded. They live in darkness, and there's this spirit being called Satan who has influence over them. That's their condition. So when someone stands up and makes a statement about a biblical value and the world freaks out over it, should that have surprised the church. Should you be reading blogs that, that people are responding like they, they can't believe you're saying? Again, you responded. Listen, I got no problem, as I'll say in just a second, I got no problem with stating righteousness. Where it becomes a problem is when you're, when you're a Christian and you're so surprised by the behavior of those who don't know God that you begin to personally insult them and attack them personally. And the conversations in these things, you know, I mean, news headlines would move from people criticizing the Bible and then, you know, they don't believe the Bible and what about this in the Bible and then, then a Christian responding by basically saying, you are the biggest idiot I've ever read. All right, somebody lost sight of something in that moment. The first thing they got lost sight of was how big of an idiot all of us were when we were saved. Because that audience Paul was sending them to, I was in that audience. Paul, I'm sending you to these people. I was one of those people. I was one under the power of Satan and blinded in my understanding and living wayward from God. I was one of those people. That's why God sent Paul. That's why the gospel came to me. 
I was one of those people. Were you one of those people? So, you know, how do I turn to somebody who's acting like I acted and go, you are such an idiot? Wait, wait, wait. What's the difference between me and that person? See, if, you, if you've been attending the Doctrines of Grace class, you get the answer to this. And if you haven't been, well, you're an idiot. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, if I understand how it is that my eyes were opened and how it is that I saw something that previously I had been blinded to, insensitive to, dead to, held in the power of other ideas that in the spirit being, I lived in that. And, and for some inexplainable reason, my eyes were opened and I saw something about God that won my heart. And then I meet somebody else who hasn't had that encounter. Shouldn't that inform me a little bit about me relating to them? And, unless, unless you're of a poor theological construct in your mind and you think you're the smart dude who figured this out. See, you were once that way, but you read enough books, studied long enough, got around the right people, prayed, fasted, did a bunch of cool stuff, and you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and put yourself in connection with God, and now you just can't figure out why everybody else doesn't do that. You, Mr. Don't Understand the Bible, I'm not an idiot like you anymore because I did something different than you did. No, you, you got changed by the mercy of God, dude. And that informs what I sound like to people. Remember, right, here's another, what do we do when the Christian's conversation conflicts with the world? Remember, the church has a role of proclaiming righteousness that is higher than social reform. I'm not saying the church doesn't have a role to play in social reform, but there is a proclamation of righteousness that is higher than social reform. Social reform falls in the category of, of common grace activity. You know, common grace is when God just does things that benefits everybody. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. We live in a world that's going to do some stuff, and as Christians... We're called to be salt and light in the earth. So if we're talking about how to do education systems, all right, hey, we're Christians. Let's bring the wisdom that we have from God and let's, let's put something together. Let's offer that into the world. How to do health care. What government structures should be like, right? Some guys who had some biblical convictions got involved with helping America take on certain values so that the structure of government is, is a certain structure. Okay, great. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And I, and I think it's we're Christians who care about people, whether those people ever end up in heaven or not. We just care about people. We love people. We want them to benefit from the wise ideas that God has, and we should play our role in influencing the government and the ideas of the culture that we live in. But that's not our primary call. Common grace is not our primary concern. Saving grace is our primary concern. What's of most importance to anybody you and I interact with is not their view on marriage. 
It's their view on their own salvation. What will make them right with God for eternity? That's the most important thing about who they are and what's going on in their life right now. Does that mean we don't influence their view of marriage? No, I think we should. I think God's ideas are good ideas. They're the ones that people are called to live by, and we should influence people. But you understand, you can have a right view of marriage and a wrong view of God, right? You can believe certain things and rally around the cause for marriage to be a certain way and be defined a certain way, and in the next moment say, oh, but I don't believe that about Christ. No, I don't That's a person with a right view of marriage headed for the end of the conveyor belt to face the judgment of God. But they got a right view of marriage. Our primary mission is not to reform the behaviors of society, but to proclaim the gospel that restores people to God and to his rightful rule. There was a lot of passion for some people this week. There were some, some Christians who kind of came to life this week, you know, sweated in line and listen, and, you know, I like chicken. I wouldn't have waited in line that long for it, but I would not have had a problem supporting a business that was simply trying to say, I have a value and I made it public and the people freaked out about it. I've got no problem saying, hey, I'm with that guy. I think you should have the right to do that as an American. And I also agree with his views. So I got no problem standing in line eating chicken. It's good for you to know that, I'm sure. (laughs) Some of you are saying, finally, a church that I can attend. (laughs) Okay, but I I do kind of get challenged a little bit when Christians who engage gospel activity, the kingdom of God, part of a church, attending meetings, praying in meetings, worshiping God, have this level of passion. And then chicken wars break out and they got this level of passion. Something in me goes, whoa, wait, there's something wrong with that. Can I warn you? Can I tell you? Can I dispel what I believe and I think I'm right? The reason why this happens in this society is because too many of you, and I say you because I'm not one of you in this category, too many of you spend too much time reading the epistles of Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly, Hannity. Some of you guys, you have your nightly devotions with these men. And what they do is they teach you something that sounds like biblical values, and quite often, many times it is. And they also teach you how to have an ungodly attitude toward others. That's why when somebody stands up and says, you know, they don't use these words, but they they model this, hey, I'm lost, I don't get it. Uh, I don't know why anybody would trust the Bible. I don't know anybody would believe or follow God. All right, now they changed the language of that. I just made it as nice as possible how it's going to sound. It's going to come off sounding like these narrow-minded, bigoted idiots who follow this Bible. I mean, do you really know the Bible says this? And it says, okay, that's what it sounds like when they serve it up. But if if you have eyes to see, what you see is these are people 
who don't have eyes to see. That's how they explain their view. And then we get taught by others to sneer and, you know, some of these guys are professional sneerers. Uh, Had I not been a pastor, I think I could have been one of these guys (laughs) because every every moment in the pulpit is a restraint of sarcasm for me. (laughs) So for me to sound as nice as I'm sounding today is extremely challenging uh, for me because when I hear an idea that's got holes in it, there's something that I want to pull out a Gatlin gun and go to work. That's just how I'm wired. And people who have to spend time with me will tell you that. Um, at least my wife didn't amen. Only Peter amened on that one. She has to go home with me. You don't. That's the difference. Um, So, you know, listen, we hear ideas and we we were taught by people, right? The knee-jerk response to Sean Hannity interviewing somebody is, if that sounds stupid, make sure you clarify just how stupid it really is. And interrupt the person rudely over and over and over again. Uh, to make sure you clarify and then push their position as far into the extreme as you can so you can help them see just how stupid it really is. You thought it was stupid at this level. Let me help you, pal. It's stupid over here. And, and you watch these shows, and that's what they're doing throughout their show. So somewhat they're agreeing with the Bible in some positions, but they're teaching you and I to have attitudes that I don't think is helping us with saving grace, the message you and I have for people is, is not a political message. It's a theological message for their souls. Make sure your politics don't get in the way of the gospel, right? You got a little political stretch coming up here. You got a bunch of campaigning going on in the next few months here. Be very careful how you hold your positions. Read the Bible and find out how animated Paul was about who was running for an election. You know, he was busy with other stuff. It didn't seem to consume him the same way. So do some devotions apart from Bill O'Reilly and those guys and might help. But here's a helpful thought from a guy named Jesse Johnson. He says, being caught in a debate about waffle fries can be distracting to the task at hand. Obviously, there is nothing wrong with supporting Christian-owned businesses, especially those that are being ostracized by the government for the faith of their owners. In that sense, Chick-fil-A Day is a great idea. Go for it. But the tendency with these kind of Christian culture wars is for Christians to completely lose the ability to differentiate between what is important and what is inconsequential. Time and energy can be spent advancing secondary and tertiary causes And the net result is often unconnected to the advance of the kingdom. If a greater number of people eat at Chick-fil-A today than kiss there on Friday, the gospel does not win. Do you understand that? If more people protest on Friday than spend their day there today, the gospel does not lose. There are two ways the gospel suffers on Chick-fil-A day. If people think that supporting Christian values is the same as evangelism. Or if people think that protecting marriage is the same as advancing the gospel. 
I'm not saying these are not unimportant causes, but when your passion for a secondary cause eclipses your passion for the primary cause, then the church needs an adjustment. Right? All right, let me see if I can move faster here. Uh, next thought. Remember, there's an unavoidable ultimate issue in the conversation. Right? You're having this debate over what's right, what's wrong. Right? It's unavoidable you're going to end up here. Human life has a variety of categories, behaviors, and social structures. Who has the right to say what those are supposed to be like? Ultimately, you can start the conversation wherever you want. At some point, this is where it will funnel down to. Your conversation with somebody is going to be about who has the right to say what's right and what's wrong. My view, and the one I will stand on, is I believe the God who created everything has the right to say what's right and what's wrong. I think he's the creator. I think he's the owner. I think he's the only one who's got the deed to anything. So he created everything, and if you read the Bible, he created it with a purpose. So everything's got design to it. So he's not only the owner, he's the architect and engineer who designed everything to function a certain way. So I think he has the right to say what's right and what's wrong. And I believe that he has revealed himself very carefully and intentionally in the scriptures. And an amazing book that if folks who critiqued it, who honestly, honestly, probably have never read any of it, were to allow this book to speak, you would be amazed at what God has preserved through these thousands of years that has shaped human history and human life. I believe God has spoken in that word. Now, you may or may not agree, but I don't like the alternative for who gets to say what's right or wrong. Look at this thought from John Stott. He says, as we reflect on the message of the Bible and the demands of our culture, we need to reassert our belief in the authority of Scripture. If we waver in our belief that God has spoken to us in the Scriptures, then we are left with conjecture and opinion. So, Keith, who do you... Well, you think that's right or wrong? Well, I think it's wrong because that's what I think. It's just your opinion, right? Yeah, it's just my opinion. Well, who are you? Well, I'm from River Ridge. I don't know. Does that help? Um, I'm 48. Does that help? Got an engineering degree. Does that, does that help? You let me be the bastion of determining what's right and what's wrong? See, I throw any idea out there to you, any idea, just put it out there. Is this right or it's wrong? There's opinions about that, right? And if you grab the string of one of these opinions, and this is the opinion of homosexual marriage, should that, should that be okay? All right, you start pulling on that string, and it passes through this guy and that group and that political organization and this media thing. You keep pulling on it. Here, let's take the mystery away, right? If I pull long enough, I'm going to find it attached to some dude. Some dude somewhere with his hair falling out and hole in his jeans. And, and I don't know. He started thinking a certain way because his college roommate's dad thought a certain way. And he thought, that works. That works for me. And so he went with that idea. Right? Do you understand the mystery of ideas and how they, they take shape? Right? Well, so all of a sudden, into our culture has come the idea that marriage should be left to the individual between Man and man, man and woman, whatever they decide, that's, that's the idea. Okay, pull on that thing for a minute. 
and run it back to wherever it started. At some point, somebody thought of that first. And you're going to find out he's no different than you or me. So I really do, I really do question when somebody critiques, you know, like, well, you're a Christian and you're an idiot because you trust the Bible. Now, I'm trying to be nice here, but look who you're trusting. <laughs> who the heck's this guy? Did he even have a job? I mean, what? who is the guy who thought up some of these ideas, passed them on, passed them on, passed them on, but now they've been around for a while. Oh, my, they must be right. Can you understand? You and I live in ideas. We live life based on ideas. I, I'm, I'm gladly telling you, my ideas come from a book that says it's from God. And when you read it, you, you get very suspicious that this had to have been from God. It says stuff that only a non-human could have come up with. And so this is the perspective that I'm buying into. Okay, I'm, I'm going with that. Now, let me just say this, though. When the, when the debate runs to who gets to say what's right, as a Christian, you kind of you get thrown into the corner of, well, that's what you say is right. You know, you say that's right because that agrees with you. Uh, no. No, you haven't read my resume. Because there was a chunk of my life where I didn't agree with this. I didn't like the ideas. I had my own designs on what's pleasurable, what's good, and for me to get it, uh, it involved lying, stealing, misrepresenting myself, deceiving people, doing drugs. Had I been a little older, it would have involved other forms of sexual pleasure. I would have had a whole list. I didn't agree with this book. I didn't think it had good ideas in it. I lived at odds with it. And then God, by his mercy, opens my eyes to see something about him. And I spent the next couple of years arguing with God on several of these points. Because I did not want to submit to God. I did not want God to have his say so. I had my own idea. So listen, just because my idea wasn't homosexuality, it doesn't mean that I didn't have a bunch of other ideas that were equally at odds with God's ideas. And what happened? Well, in 1979, by the mercy of God, God opened my eyes to see some things. And even though I didn't fully understand or even agree with God about everything, what I saw of God was enough for me to say, I want you in my life. I'm not quite sure where are you going to take me, but I know it's a better place than I'd take myself. And I want to follow you. And I began to follow. So it's not fair to say, well, you agree with the Bible because the Bible agrees with you. I did not always agree with the Bible. I was like anybody else. And if your category is homosexuality and you say, I don't agree with the Bible on homosexuality, I didn't agree with the Bible on several other categories. Don't treat that one like an island. It's just one category amongst a bunch of categories. So you disagree on homosexuality. I disagreed on some other things. But eventually the issue became, who gets to tell me what's right? Me or God? And that's where this is ultimately going to go. Listen. I don't think I wrote this out for you. Man's ultimate sin, listen, his ultimate sin, it's not homosexuality. It's not murder. It's not terrorism or materialism. It is his refusal to honor God as God and to submit to his rule. That's, that's man's ultimate sin. When you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, it wasn't a sexual sin. 
It, it wasn't murder. It wasn't some stealing capital offense. What was it that was the ultimate sin that separated those two individuals from God? What was it? It was disobedience. God said do this, and they chose to do that. They just disobeyed God. See, let me just read some of this passage to you from Romans chapter 1. That's how Romans categorizes man's ultimate sin. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. All right, so there's truth out there to be known for any of us to know. But if you don't know it, the Bible holds you responsible. It says there's truth. If you can know it, if you want to pick this up and read it, you can know the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What was the result? Well, they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, and creeping things. Right? This is what happens when, when you decide, I'm not going to let God rule over me. I'm not going to let God be God. Everything falls into the wrong category in life. Every category becomes dysfunctional. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations. That's a very important word in this discussion. Their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, right, there's the sin. The ultimate sin is deciding I will not acknowledge who God is in my life. I will determine what's right and wrong for me. That's what I think Dan Cathy was referring to when he says, a man who shakes his fist at God and says, I will not buy into your ideas. I will come up with my own. Right? Well, that's what Romans is talking about here. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Listen, this, this is the ultimate issue. This is why the ultimate conversation for us is not marriage. The ultimate conversation for us is, will you let God be God? 
Will you let God rule? It's his rightful place. Right? In this conversation, there are people on this side and there are people on this side. Right? Can we step back from those people for a moment and acknowledge, if you're a person who believes in God, God is in this argument somewhere. And God says, this is my world. I created it. I created marriage. I created human relationships. I have the right to say how they should be done. And this is what I say. And the man who rejects that rejects God. Now, I've got too many thoughts here and not enough time. Um, This is, not, this is not an easy subject. Our culture is not made in an easy subject. And it will take some wisdom and care, carefulness from the church to address this in the future and to continue to address it. Um, let me just point out something obvious here in this passage. This passage depicted homosexual activity in it and then went on to list a long list of sins Immediately in the same context, right? Um, I will get comments. Again, this is, I'm just warning you. This is the culture training you what to listen for. I will get comments. If I mention homosexuality in a message, I will get comments every once in a while from folks. But you guys have been in the church a while. You know I, there's, there's pretty much not an issue that I'm not going to make a comment about. How many of you guys know I've said about 10 times more about divorce than I have about homosexuality? How come nobody sends many letters on that? Right, and the letter starts to feel a little bit like this. Had I invited a friend, I would have felt very awkward for them to have heard that. Okay? Did you ever invite a divorced friend to come to church with you? Did you ever invite an overweight friend to come to church with you? Did you ever invite anybody who's got anger management issues to come to church with you? I mean, I reference this stuff all the time. Why is it that we have ears to hear, you said homosexual, you said homosexual. See, that's the thing I don't like about churches. They pick on homosexuals. Did you read the rest of this list? Some of you ought to be squirming a whole lot more than that homosexuals are in here. Did you read that disobedience to parents is in here? Are you concerned about that, any of you? Not just the teenagers. Some of you were kids at one point. Remember that? I mean, you, you checking the list out? There's gossips on this list. Oh, my gosh, Facebook. Oh. All right, this is where the church kind of gets weird, okay? <clears throat> and I had somebody ask me this, <clears throat> and I'm going to close in just a second. I could go way too long. Um, I had somebody ask me one time. They were, uh, they were thinking of coming to the church. They were referred here by someone, and they made an appointment with me to ask some questions about the church, what it's like, what do we believe. They were, the guy says he was a Christian, he was a young guy, married man. And the, one of the first questions he asked me, one of the first questions in his interview was, 
So Keith, let's, let's, say, let's say a homosexual walks through the door on a Sunday. How is he going to be treated? That's one of the first questions he asked me. Right, so immediately, I, you know, whether your mind goes there or not, this is a person who's been told by the culture what's critical. That's critical. Right. I said, well, I'll give you the best can- answer I can. I said, I'll give you two answers, actually. One would be the way in which I think he should be treated, and the other would be realistic in the way in which he might be treated. How should he be treated? I said, as far as I'm concerned, he should be treated just like the drunk who walked in right in front of him and the guy full of pride who walked in right after he did. That's how he should be treated. Um, I think he went on to explain, he should be treated just like I was treated when I walked into a church for the first time because I've got my own issues. Man, homosexuality is not one, but I've got other issues that people had to decide how would they relate to me once they got to know that I had sin issues in my life. I said, so that's ideally how he would be treated. How might he be treated? Well, honestly, uh, we live in a culture that has stigmatized that behavior, and he might actually be treated a little differently than somebody else would be. Uh, as a church, we probably need to address that, right? Because sin is sin. And I don't have time to preach a message on the uniqueness of homosexual sin because I do think there are some uniquenesses to it. But not redemptive uniqueness. And, and listen, I'm preaching, and I know preaching gets received a certain way, uh, and obviously I can't do this, but through the years, I've met with a number of people who struggle with homosexuality, I've met with a number of people who struggle with sex outside of marriage, who've fallen into a situation, some, some sexual involvement that they shouldn't have done took place in their life. If, if I could let those people stand in front of you and say, hey, when you, when you went for your meeting with Keith, what was that like? How were you treated? Probably all of them would use the Baskin-Robbins illustration I use all the time to explain there's 31 varieties of sin because one of the first things I would have said to them, knowing this is an obstacle for them, would have been, listen, your sin is in this category, mine and these. So, you know, you might got Rocky Road going on, but God, I got pistachio, and I need, I need the forgiveness and grace of God in my life every bit as much as you do. And so that would have been where our discussion would have lived quite a bit. I would have talked to them about hope and about the mercy of God. I would have talked about the reality that what they're embracing is sin according to the Bible, just like issues in my life are sin. So our culture is telling us something. Our culture is living in this thing. Okay, the, church, um, the church needs to be prepared to respond, right? Every one of us needs to be prepared to respond, needs to be careful in how we engage the conversation. We need to have a gospel conversation in a gay marriage world. We need to be ready to do that in a redemptive, God-glorifying way. So let's stand up together. Let me just ask us just to, to let the Lord co- put a couple seeds in our hearts here. I know we covered a lot, but let's just bow our heads in prayer for a moment.
I want you this morning as a, as a believer, as a representative, as one who speaks on behalf of God with your life and through your life and through your attitudes and through your words, I want you to put yourself in between the tension of a person who's called to represent a God who loves people. God who is compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. A God who can have a conversation with a woman at a well and she's able to walk away feeling both loved and corrected. You and I are called to represent that God and we're also called to represent the very same God who is righteous and he has said certain things about sin, what is good and what is not good. You are called to represent that God. I hope you feel the tension. I hope that you don't default to your personality to decide how you will represent God. You are not God. You have a little bit of insight into an aspect of God, but you must be faithful to who God is, not to who you'd prefer him to be. So some of you need to become a whole lot more loving and be a whole lot more emphasizing of the love of God than you are. And some need to, to make room to say uncomfortable things to people because you recognize that God is righteous and sin sits on a conveyor belt awaiting its judgment. And if you really do love them like you say you do, you're going to have to pray for them and ask God to give you ways to engage their life that help them. In light of eternity, it helps them. I hope all of us can get in touch with the the tension over the coming months of these discussions that we are pulled in both directions. We are pulled by our, our sense of God's righteousness and we are also pulled and informed by our own humility. That we recognize that what separates us from those who have such hostility to God is nothing about us. It's the grace of God. God had mercy on my eyes to let me see. Oh, may I engage conversations in such a way that I don't treat people like I've got it and they're idiots. Because but for the grace of God, go I. Lord, inform us inform us in these things. Lord, these are realistic tensions as we represent your gospel into this world. God, I pray for some this week who who recognize this week was a week of unusual passion in their life. Lord, they were animated. They wanted to check the news and they wanted to hear what was being said and they wanted to go stand in line or do whatever because there was passion ignited in their hearts. God, I pray that gospel passion would inform our passions more than any other passion. Lord, it's fine for us to have passions in other categories, but may they never cast a shadow on our passion for the gospel. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to be the church to all types of sinners.